Last week, we began this series with a view to setting our heart to desire and delight in God's word. As Jeremiah wrote, to take joy and delight in it, that it would be the joy and delight of our hearts. One of the challenges we identified last week and began to look at that kind of hinders people from actually reading God's word is the lack of the ability to understand God's word. That some people don't know where to begin in studying God's word so that they can learn and grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Uh, So one of the things I want to do over the next few weeks here is to teach you, to equip you how to study God's word. So that you can come to the table and you can feast upon the word of God, that you can delight in it, be nourished by it, and savor every morsel that God has set forth in that beautiful spread of his word before us. I really want you to love God's word. And I'm convinced when you begin to understand God's word, you'll love it. You will take joy and delight in it. Now I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 2. So if you can turn there. I'm just going to read one verse, verse 15. In a particular charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Who is a leader, a pastor, an elder uh, of a church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Hear the words of the Lord. Do your best to present yourself to God... As one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Again, this is Paul, the apostle of the Lord, and he is writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. This is how he refers to him. There's a lot of affection and warmth that Paul uh, expresses towards Timothy. And here, because Timothy is a leader in the church, he is giving him a specific direct charge. That Timothy is to do his best to find himself approved by God. To present himself before God as one approved. Now it's not the approval of men that Timothy is to seek after. It is God's. Timothy's aim is not to please men, to please their desires, to to speak to men and communicate to them, to receive accolades for them and the praises of men. He is to seek God's approval. His aim should be to please the Lord in all things. Now that word approved means to be tested and tried. It's it's a metallurgical term as when a, a metal is passed through the fire to be tested, to be tried, to prove that it is genuine, authentic, to be tested and true. And Paul's describing Timothy here that way. This is a young man who is approved by God. He's been tested and tried. He's been passed through the fire, and he's coming across as someone who can present himself before God as one tested and tried. He's tried and true. So there's no reason for Timothy then to be ashamed whatsoever. He is a proven worker. Now, if there is a proven worker, necessarily that means there's also an unproven worker. If there is something such as a good worker, there's also a bad worker. And interestingly here, Paul, just a few verses down, names two bad workers, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These are not good baby names, so don't use those, all right? These were false teachers of the church. And Paul categorizes them as unproven workers. Ones who actually should be 
deeply ashamed of themselves because of the way they're conducting themselves. So you have here the unashamed proven worker and the shameful unproven worker. And they're contrasted in this portion uh, of 2 Timothy here. Again, these bad workers are not approved by God and should be deeply ashamed. And here's why. They haven't been rightly handling the word of truth. We find Timothy the good worker approved by God. No need to be ashamed because he's rightly handling the word of truth. But these others weren't. They were mishandling the word of truth. And they had reason to be ashamed because of that. Now, there are far too many bad teachers out there, sadly. I mean, just just listen to some of the podcasts out there. Or don't. Preferably that you don't, right? Um, But what I want to do is spend a few moments on that phrase that characterizes that proven, unashamed teacher of God's word. One who rightly handles the word of truth. Now, the verb used for that, rightly handling, uh, literally means to cut straight. It's like if you take a scissor and you have a straight line and you can cut straight across it. Okay, That's what the word literally means. In fact, some of your translations might render it dividing, so it kind of sounds like you're separating, but that's not really the best way to translate uh, what the point that Timothy is getting across here. Right? It means to guide along a straight path. So in essence, what Paul is saying is that a good worker, one approved by God, one who doesn't need to be ashamed, is one who gives the word of God straight to people. He doesn't deviate from the straight path of the word of God. And that's important. Because a teacher of the word, someone who rightly handles the word of God, is someone who can give the word of God straight, with precision and care, rightly communicating the word of truth. Because that word of truth is the apostolic teaching. It's the gospel. It's scripture. That means it's not the teacher's words that they should be preaching. It's not their own truth. You know, it's in vogue now for everyone to have their own truth, speak their own truth. No one claiming to be a preacher or teacher of God's word should be speaking their own truth. That is an antichrist. That's a devil. Turn them off. The word of God should be given straight. The straight path of the word is what is to be taught and proclaimed and preached to the people of God. But what do you have here? You have the bad workers, these false teachers. And he says in verse, 7, in verse 18a that these have swerved from the truth. Notice what he's saying there. If a good worker who rightly handles the truth is giving it straight, now these people have detoured swerved away, deviated from the straight path and teaching of the word of truth. They were confusing God's people. They were upsetting the faith of some people. You can imagine the the uproar that that was happening by some of these people teaching. In fact, those two mentioned there were teaching that the the, the resurrection had already come. So it was just throwing people into just confusion uh, in the church. Some of you might have been part of a church uh, that some false teachers arose, and now all of a sudden there's just, just crazy stuff happening uh, in the church as a result of that. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion. Why? Because there are some who are mishandling the word of truth. They're crooked. They're not straight. 
This happens in far too many pulpits on any given Sunday. The Bible gets cracked open, a verse is read, and people are hopeful. My God, he's going to teach the word. How awesome. We're actually going to get to learn something. And then the, the dude goes off in another tangent. And it starts to tell stories. And it's like a TED talk. And you're hopeful he's going to get back to that scripture, but he never does. They deviate from the truth. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. We don't want to be that, all right? My task, my one task on a given Sunday is the same charges that Paul gives Timothy. To give you the word straight. To, to, To not deviate from it. To do that, I need to rightly handle the word of truth. Otherwise, I would find myself to be an unapproved worker, one who should be deeply ashamed. I don't endeavor to be deeply ashamed, okay? I don't want to be ashamed. I want to rightly handle the word of truth. So that's my main responsibility. But it doesn't stop with just the pastor, elder, or teacher. The responsibility of rightly handling the word of truth belongs to every believer. Every single one of you have the same charge to rightly handle the word of truth. Well, you would say, well, I don't stand up and preach in front of people or in front of a group of people. You don't. Most of you don't. But every one of you has a responsibility for teaching God's word to your children, husbands, to your spouse and kids. Every believer, when someone comes to them for counsel and guidance from God's word, every believer, as they are discipling another young convert, a young believer in the faith and instructing them in the word of God, you also need to rightly handle the word of truth. It is critical and important that all of God's people grab a hold of that. That charge is not for just the person who stands behind a pulpit. The charge is for every single one of us in Christ Jesus who have the, the blessing of having his word to read, to study, to take into our hearts, and then to impart and teach that in any arena or sphere that God gives us in the midst of other people here. So I, I want you to grab a hold of that, to, to accept that, that it's your responsibility to rightly handle God's word. We talked last week that there's a pandemic out there of the spiritually and scripturally ignorant, and we don't want to be those people. Amen? Not a single one of us in here have an excuse to be scripturally ignorant. We beat this drum week in and week out. You need God's word. God's word is central to all that we do here as people. All right, so let me walk through a few things to begin to show you uh, how to... Uh, understand the Bible so that you can begin to study it. Uh, One of the key things right away that I want you to know, and again, this might be a review for some of you. That's cool. I'm glad. Uh, But sadly, not every believer really understands this, you know, the things of of how your Bible is put together and, and what it consists of. So one of the keys to rightly handling God's word is understanding the big picture. The grand storyline, the grand meta-narrative of God's Word. Okay? Your Bible, as you look at it, right, when you open up to the table of contents, there are 66 books listed there, aren't there? I hope so. 
Otherwise, you got something else going on there, right? <laughs> uh, that's a good note there, at least 66 books. If you got 182 books, like, toss that thing away, all right? Or less than, you know, let's find you another one, okay? See me afterwards, and we'll get one into your hands, okay? But it's, so you read it in the table of con, you go, okay, this is a collection of 66 books. And many of you know this. It's approximately 40 authors written anywhere from 1500 uh, to a 2,000-year time span. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable literary work. Your Bible is divided into two large categories of, 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 of content, right? The Old Testament, the New Testament, written largely in two main languages, Hebrew and Greek, respectively. Your Hebrew Bible, uh, the way the original Hebrew Bible was put together is not in the same order of books the way you see it in your Old Testament. Because in the Hebrew Bible, there was three main categories of, of literature. You had the law, the prophets, and the writings. And our, our, our Bible, as we have it today, kind of deviates away from this format because there's actually more literary genres and literary styles to your Bible, isn't there? We, we went through this when we were in the book of Proverbs. In order to understand Proverbs, you've got to understand that it's poetic literature. It's wisdom literature. And you don't read poetic and wisdom literature the same way you read historical narrative. Okay? Or, or you read the letters in the New Testament. You have to understand the literary style, the literary genre of each book to give us an idea of how, how we read it, study it, interpret it so that we can apply God's word to our lives there. Right? Uh, so but last week we stated that because God is the one who inspired the writings here, right? it's through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all scripture, as 2 Timothy says, is breathed out by God, then the main author, the one author of your Bible is, is God. It's not all of the writers, the human authors that we see listed, maybe at the head of the book, or how the book is titled, or who identify them there, the one main author is God. He is its divine author. Therefore, because he's the one author, when we think of approaching these 66 books, this collection of books, we need to see it as a unity, as a unified whole. And sometimes when we approach Scripture and read it, we saw 66 different or independent books, and we can't look at them that way. Now, if you come to my office at my house, I have some 800 or so printed books. I've got thousands of digital books. You can reach for any one of those books and another book, and neither one of those two books will probably reference the other. You could say, I have a collection of independent books. You have that at home as well on your bookshelf. You cannot approach God's Word that way. It's not a collection of independent works or independent books it's one unified book, one unified whole. And that's important in how you approach and study God's word. So that if you want to truly understand God's word, if you want to handle it rightly, you have to consider with what you're reading in the Bible at, at any given moment where it fits in, in the big picture, the grand storyline of scripture. And how is what I'm reading, how does it contribute to the great plot, the grand storyline. So in, rather than treating your book as a collection, or your Bible as a collection of 66 books, it's one book. Think of it that way. Approach it that way. Read it that way. Okay? 
And that stops a lot of the time, the little flip and dip, you know, going into God. What am I going to read today? Okay. Isaiah. All right. You know, no, we don't want to read God. You don't go and read a work of, of uh, whether it's nonfiction or fiction and just pop it open into the middle and start reading where it's at. We, we, don't, we don't come to regular reading that way. We shouldn't treat God's word that way as well. Okay. Now, the Bible has is one book and it has one author, but it also has one main subject. Can you guess what that subject is? It's Jesus Christ. Absolutely. The supreme subject, the central focus of God's word, of biblical literature, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and his glorious rescue plan, his redemption and salvation through him. Now, you might say, well, I get that. That's the New Testament. But it's not just the New Testament. It's your Old Testament as well. And many read the Old Testament as if like, that's a different God than the God of the New Testament. Because the name Jesus isn't found in the Old Testament, only references that in the New Testament. We must be looking at two different things. No, you're not. Let me show you three places that Jesus identifies himself with the Old Testament. John 5.39. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Self-revelation of Jesus Christ in Old Testament prophetic literature Luke 24 27 and beginning with Moses now this is a post-resurrection scene Uh, this is him with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted them all the scriptures the things concerning himself now all the scriptures there were not the New Testament the New Testament hadn't even been written at this point it's the Old Testament it's the Hebrew scriptures the law the writings the prophets Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The whole of scripture, your Bible from beginning to end has Jesus as its center. He is the point of scripture. Don't forget that. That's important. Every time you come to it, when you read it, there is a, 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 an understanding that we approach and go, where is Jesus in this? What is it saying about Christ? What is it revealing about Christ? What is it saying about his salvation and redemption? Okay, and that's, that is critical to studying God's word. So Paul writes in Colossians that he's been entrusted with making the word of God fully known. And listen to what he calls it. He calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. And he goes on to say, here's what that mystery is that was in the Hebrew scriptures, in the writings. It was kind of veiled. That mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All of those things that were hidden have now been fully manifested. And guess what it reveals? It's Jesus. Augustine, writing in the 4th century, said that the Old Testament, right, that the new is in the old concealed. The New Testament is in the old concealed. And then you also have the flip side of that. The old is in the New Testament revealed. And you look at the Old Testament, what do you see? You have the promises of the Messiah. You don't have the name Jesus there. No one knew when or who that would be necessarily. 
But the promise of Messiah was there, but not the fulfillment. In fact, your Old Testament ends there in Malachi, and you see nothing about the Messiah's coming. It's like you could write to be continued there. It's like when you're watching a trilogy, right? You start one of them, and then the movie ends, and there's no resolution. The climax of the story hasn't happened, and and it's certainly not the resolve. You have to wait for the next one. And then the New Testament shows up on the scene, and what do we find there? The fulfillment. And then, of course, the promise of what's to come, the glory to come at the end of the age. So if your Bible's a unified whole, and if your Bible is one book with one divine author, with one main subject, so we need to be careful then how we approach our study of God's Word. We need to be diligent and careful in how we read and study the Bible. Because it's not a book of random sayings. Some of you might have a book of quotes at home. Right? And you can open up to any of those quotes, right? And, oh, this is a really inspirational one from. And this is how many approach God's word. Let me see what God's word, what helpful tip God's word has for me today. It's a wonderful manual for life. We're not to approach God's word that way. <clears throat> That's not the primary way to read and study scripture. There is a unified thread that runs through the Bible, that runs through Scripture, that ties it all together. And I want you to see your word that way. Now, there's a branch of theological study called biblical theology, okay? Biblical theology. And, and biblical theology concerns itself with tracing uh, the progress of God's revelation through time. In other words, God did not fully disclose everything at the beginning, did he? Like you can't go to Genesis and see the whole plan of redemption there, can you? It doesn't tell you about salvation through Jesus Christ. There's types, there's shadows, there's hints, okay? There's foreshadowing, all of these things. But as you move through your Bible, if you look at it chronologically through the different ages there, the timeline, which we're going to look at here in a moment, you're going to see that there was greater light shown as that self-revelation continued to progress and grow. We see the divine activity of God in human history until you have the full revelation in Jesus Christ. What biblical theology helps you to do is to understand all of that and see how all of the parts fit together. How one text that you're reading fits in with other parts of the Bible. Okay? And that's really important when we come to understand, understanding uh, Scripture, understanding how it's put together. Now, a very practical and easy way that you can remember the big picture is by dividing the, the, the storyline, the grand storyline, into four divisions of Scripture, okay, which you'll see on screen here. You've, you probably have seen this before. It's creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. It's a way of looking at the, the grand story, the meta narrative, the plot of Scripture into these four categories, creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. Now, if you know a little bit about how stories are put together, you know, books that you love to read or movies, they all follow a, a, a similar way. A story starts, and what you have is the exposition. There's the characters are presented, the setting is introduced. In creation, what do we find? We find God, who, by the way, is the protagonist of the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but the Bible's not about you. It's not about me. You're not the main actor in the story. 
You're not the star. You're not the celebrity of this story. God. <laughs> All right? It's God's introduced. The very first verse of the Bible. We find him creating and he's making this world. Right? So now we have the setting. Earth. And then it kind of zooms in a little bit more. And what? There's the garden. And other characters are introduced. Right? We have Adam and Eve. Humanity's introduced. The serpent is introduced, right? So you have the exposition right here in this creation division of the plot to understand it begins to kind of unfold. But then what comes next? The fall. The fall is where conflict is introduced. Every good story needs to have conflict. If there's no conflict, it's a boring story, isn't it? Things got to happen. And the fall forward introduces this conflict. There's this rising action. There's this escalation. The story is moving in a direction, right? Sin and death are introduced into the world. The world is now broken. The world no longer operates as it should. There is sickness. There's disease. There is death. We see all of the the work of the serpent, right? To destroy the seed of the woman throughout human history. And then you have redemption, This is the climax of the story. And what event is that? It's the death of our Lord. It's the cross. It's the climax of the story. Why? Because this is how God is rescuing humanity. This is how God redeems humanity. All the way back from the promise in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Now we find that in this climactic moment in human history. Where Jesus sacrifices himself. Where he dies. And through his blood now, humanity is redeemed. Okay? And then you have now some falling action that leads to the resolution, which is what you see there. Restoration. The consummation of all things. Some call it the recreation. Right? This is when Jesus returns and there's this world is recreated. A new heavens and a new earth. Right? It's the resolution of the story. So you can begin to look at your Bible this way. That, that story is there, that meta-narrative in Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Paul gives a little bit of a hint of this meta-narrative in Ephesians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 7, starting in verse 7 in Ephesians, he writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Look at this making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What's Paul saying there? He's saying there's a mystery that was hidden, but but now it's been made known. And the mystery is this, that God had a plan. God had a divine will and purpose that was progressively revealed, now fully disclosed in Christ Jesus. And and, and there was a cosmic timeline in which everything was going to work itself out concerning Christ and concerning his plan of redemption and how he was coming to unite all things into himself and redeem those that are his. Right? That's what's happening in Scripture. As you read your Bible, as you're working through it, as you're in the Old Testament, understand that that doesn't exist independent or outside of this big picture, meta-narrative, grand storyline of Scripture. 
You can't just dip into it and think, I can take something from this completely unrelated to the rest of the story. I was just meeting, I was telling Betsa here, I was meeting with someone here recently, and this is his approach to Scripture. He loves going into the Old Testament, looking at the narrative, and then super-spiritualizing everything, and seeking some prophetic meaning, some underlying, hidden prophetic thing behind the narrative of Scripture. We can't approach our Bible that way. Nothing exists like that itself outside of God's story, because it's God's story, not ours. And to rightly handle the word of truth means I don't get to import what I want it to mean for myself or for others. It needs to mean what it means. And for it to mean what it means, I need to understand what it means in the context of this grand storyline. Now, we can further divide this a little bit. If you think about those four divisions, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, like if you open up Google Maps and, and you have the zoomed out view, right? Maybe over the state of Florida, where we're at. But you can't really see the individual cities within the state. You just see the state of Florida. What do you got to do to see the cities? You zoom in, right? You zoom in, and now all of a sudden the names appear, right, of, of different cities or regions of our state. So we can further make other divisions in this storyline that kind of highlight major points uh, along the grand uh, storyline, the big picture of Scripture. They're, they're, these are the major points in the plot line of redemptive history. And depending on whose biblical theology work you read, it can be eight, it can be ten, it can be twelve divisions. It doesn't matter. I just, what I want you to see is that there's, there are main storylines also within, or subplots, if you will, within the greater meta-narrative meta here. And what it does is helps us see a structure to God's Word. So as we begin to study it, things start to make sense for us. We see how things fit. Let me just give you these ten quickly here. The first is the creation and the fall as a high point, a major uh, segment, if you will, of the grand storyline of Scripture, right? It's the creation account in Genesis. The first several chapters here unfold the beginnings. Of course, we have the fall, which leads to this next main section of scripture, the flood and God's promises. These are the covenants to uh, the patriarchs. We have Noah. We have the, the, the covenant made with Noah, really with creation. Then we have the covenant God makes with Abraham and the other subsequent patriarchs in this segment of scripture. Then we have the Exodus and the law. So your book of Exodus and, uh, and all that's disclosed there with the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt as the law is given to Moses and then given to the people, we have this important, huge portion and segment of Scripture. Four, you have the conquest, the conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is what God promised through his covenant to the patriarchs. And then you have also life in the promised land. So as you're reading uh, portions of the book there of, of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. All of those are happening within this particular time uh, of, of uh, biblical history. Uh, the kingdom and the temple would be the next, right? This is Saul, David, Solomon. Okay? When you read First and Second Samuel, it is describing, it's given us the narrative of this time, the building of the temple uh, under Solomon, a huge major point uh, in the plot of Scripture. This leads us all the way up to the divided kingdom of Judah 
uh, and Israel, which leads to number six, the exile. Right? You read Kings and Chronicles, and, and this is when the Assyrians capture and, and take into captivity the kingdom of the north, Israel. Later on, Babylon with the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, uh, number seven, the return from exile. In fact, there's actually three that you can see in Scripture. Your major prophets were prophesying during the return. Uh, under the exile, you had the majority of your minor prophets were prophesying either to Judah or to Israel during that time. Uh, but from the return from exile, you have Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, you have Daniel, you have Ezra and Nehemiah, and those are written during the exile, uh, the return from exile. Number eight, of course, the Messiah, right? The Messiah, and your Gospels give us the narrative of, of Christ there. And then you have the church, the church and the church age, Acts, all of the epistles, and of course, the end, right? Yeah. So it's a further way to, to, to subdivide those four divisions. So when you're reading Scripture, you're reading books of the Bible, you can see where things make sense. Now, and that's important to have a general grasp of the story. In fact, I encourage you to kind of memorize Memorize the storyline of Scripture. Memorize these categories. It is so helpful for when you read. Uh, you got on the way in and received a handout. It's also one you can download uh, in your notes. It looks like this. This is a great biblical timeline. In fact, this was uh, uh, adapted from a great work by uh, Graham Goldsworthy and uh, how he broke up. Uh, the timeline of history. In fact, those 10 categories I gave you, you could see it on this map, even though it's not listed that way. But what you can see in this timeline that is supremely helpful, fold this up, put this in your Bible, review it, try to memorize these portion things. You can begin to see either major characters or books of the Bible, where they fall in these periods of, of the biblical timeline itself, all the way up through the division of the kingdom here, where, and you can see which prophets were prophesying to which kingdom, either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. You can see here when Jerusalem was destroyed, you can see the return of the first exiles, and then you have the, the exiles to Babylon, and them coming back, Zechariah, Malachi, those prophets uh, during that time, and then, of course, our new period here, the New Testament here. Memorize this. Kind of get a mental picture of it. Especially when you're in the Old Testament, you want to know what you're reading, where it fits in the timeline. Because it's going to help you understand it. When you go, ah, this prophet was ministering to the exiles of Judah. Well, that makes sense than what he's saying. This is where we get into trouble, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. How many of you quote that? How many of you have got that stitched into your underwear? Oh, I've got plans for you, you know, and it's great promises. Who's that for? Who's that written to? Is that for me? How would you know if you don't know where it fits in the grand storyline? I can tell you it's not something you're supposed to be quoting like it's for you. Okay? Because you were not in exile in Babylon. If you were, you're a time traveler. Welcome to the future. Okay? But you need to understand, where was this in human, where was this in redemptive history so I can understand how to interpret it and then make application? What happens? People read without studying, without interpreting, and they immediately want to move to application. Oh, that must be for me. 
or they take, oh, I'm going to claim that. No, you can't just claim anything like that in Scripture. It does not work that way. Okay? Very important. But anyway, keep this in your Bible. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to grasp that it's one story, one author, one main subject. It is a cohesive, unified story. Again, where God is the protagonist. If you keep that in mind when you approach Scripture, you have got a great head start to beginning to understand it, interpret it, and then apply it to your life. All right. Now let's move on to uh, principles for understanding God's Word. Uh, and there's three main principles here. And if you want to love God's Word, if you want to become, it become the joy and delight of your heart, we want to rightly handle the Word of truth as we're commanded to do, we have to learn how to read it, how to study it, so that we understand it. And I submit a lot of reasons people don't really love God's word is they don't understand it. And it's hard to love what you don't understand. Right? If you don't get it, you don't understand it, you know, when you come to it, it's like, uh, it's a chore. It's, it's hard. It's laborious. And we, we need to endeavor to understand it. So three principles for understanding God's word. We're going to look at the first today. Observation interpretation, and application. If we really want to understand God's word, these elements, these principles, these strategies have to be part of your study of God's word. When we think about observation, it's more of understanding or answering the question, what does it say? What does what I'm reading say? Interpretation answers the question, what does it mean? Because as we'll look at next week, when we approach the Bible text, it's not what does it mean to me, it's what does it mean. Not to me, but to the people who were the intended audience of what was written. Super important. Again, we don't, we don't get screwed up when we come again to Jeremiah 29 and go, that's for me. What does that mean for me? No, it's not what it means for me. What did it mean for them? Okay. And that's an important place to start. And we'll look at that, how we go about that next week. And then application answers the question, what do I do? With what I've read, what I've studied, what I've interpreted, what do I do with that now? How do I apply that to my life? What are the principles I can take for that that can put this to use in my life? And we will look at that in a couple weeks here. All right, let me answer this question because it was asked a couple of times after last Sunday is then, what about reading plans? What Should I use a reading plan? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I know you may not like that answer. The question, the question I ask is, if, if you've never done it and you're like, I really want to do that, go ahead and do it. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Um, or if you have a good grasp of, of the Bible and you want to do a read through the Bible in a year plan, go for it. Okay, it's a great way to refresh yourself, uh, refamiliarize yourself with where things are in the Bible. Okay? There's, here's a challenge where a lot of people have. There's people who read their Bible, but it's they only read the books they like. I love the Psalms, love the Proverbs, and I love the Gospels. And like that's all they read. I love Ruth. I love Esther. You know? And they don't read anything else. Read the Bible through in the year. I, I need you to understand where things are in the Bible. All right? Uh, you, you, we want to have a full understanding of God's Word. All right? But there are some pros and cons. And I, and I think the biggest pro through reading the Bible in a year is what I've just stated. You get familiar with where everything is. Peoples, places, events. Ah, that's where that is, you know, in Scripture. Oh, I've 
I've heard this story before. That's where it is in the Bible. It, it's good. But there are some major drawbacks to moving to what we're trying to be after, loving God's word, taking joy in it, and making it the delight of our hearts. One of the biggest cons, I'll call it a drawback, is that as you're speed reading through the Bible here, you come to some very complex things, some very complicated stories, and because your goal is to get through it, you never understand it. There's no way you have time to come back in order to finish reading the Bible through a year to actually understand what's going on. So it's hard to grasp, but we're talking about the big picture. Because the, the way Bible reading plans are segmented, there's such all of these artificial breaks in the story. You know, you're never reading through an entire story sometimes, so it's hard for you to get your mind. You know, it's, it's, our brains work a certain way. And when we when we chunk it up like this and truncate these stories and have all these breaks in it, we don't remember what we just read. We're just trying to get through the next things. Or if you have story plans that are all over the Bible, you know, and there's no cohesive thing through it, it's really hard to, to make sense of what's, what's going on through the scriptures here. Uh, these kind of Bible reading plans also elevate verses or chapters over the whole book. By that I mean it's like we begin to see just individual sections and verses of your Bible. I don't know if you knew this, but the original writings do not have verses and chapters. Okay? That's a shocker, isn't it? It's just one long book, one long letter. But we become so accustomed to seeing it in these little verses, these little sections, these chapter headings, and, and we forget what it is. This is why people rip Bible verses out of context all the time. Because these kind of Bible reading plans teach you to read God's, unintentionally teach you to read God's word that way. Uh, Again, what we're talking about in-depth Bible study, you're not going to do it reading through the Bible in a year. You you don't have time. Because here's the thing. You miss a few days, that's where discouragement sets in. How do I catch up? I am 852 chapters behind, and it's February. What do I do, you know? Um, it's tough, you know, again, because the goal is getting through the Bible in a year, not learning to love my Bible and understand what I'm reading. Okay. Different goal. Okay. If you want to read the Bible in a year and you want to understand the storyline of the scripture, the, the big picture, I do recommend a chronological reading plan. Okay. And you're going to see your Bible's all over the place. Okay, because you need to understand, like what I'm talking about, this prophet was ministering and prophesying during the time of this king. So as you're in Chronicles and it mentions this king, oh, now all of a sudden it's throwing me to read these chapters of one of the minor prophets. Okay, and, but it helps you understand a little bit more of the big picture, um, but it's a hard way. But again, you're not going to do any in-depth Bible reading or Bible study uh, by using any of those through the Bible in a year reading plan, but you can download that uh, from the link in the sermon notes if you want to. So what I stated last week stands. Here's my suggested Bible reading plan for us, okay, that I, if you want to uh, adopt in your life, I would be really happy if you did, and that is master a book of the Bible each month. One book of the Bible each month. You're going to read that every day for 30 days 
one book of the Bible. Now, longer books, you may want to break up into a little bit longer period of time. It's going to be very hard to do the Psalms in one month, right? It's going to be hard to do some of the, the, the books of the Old Testament, right? Uh, complicated books like Romans, probably not going to do it in 30 days. You can break that up. Why? Because there's no rush. There's no timeline to get through the Bible in a year. One book of the Bible a month. Shorter books, think about it. You can read that every single day for 30 days. Some of the small books in the New Testament, you're reading in 12 to 15 minute sittings. And you have time to go back over it and go back over different sections of it. Think about it. 30 times you read through the book of Colossians in one month. How well will you know Colossians after 30 readings? Really well. How well would you know Colossians if it was one day's reading in a year through your Bible reading plan? Not, not very well at all. Okay? There's huge upside to this. Uh, longer books, you can break them into manageable readings. I encourage alternating an Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, New Testament book. Okay? Beginning of February, we're going to start a multi-month series through First and Second Timothy and Titus. You may want to, during that time, say, hey, for the next 90 days, I'm going to uh, study these books and, and really immerse myself in this. And it's, uh, again, there's no, you can begin anywhere you want. But the pros are that, again, you can dig deeper. You will actually have time to do a Bible study, to take notes, to read commentaries, to memorize Scripture. All of the things that you want to do interpret and apply it to your life, you can do that because you're spending time in one book of the Bible. And there's no checklist. Ah, I gotta, eh, gotta finish this one. You don't need to do that. But if you read one book of the Bible and mastered one book of the Bible each month, you would get through your Bible in five and a half years. That's a pretty good goal. How well would you know God's word after five and a half years if you did that? A lot better than if you read through your entire Bible in one year. Okay? That's what I want you to see. You can mine God's word for its riches and treasures. You can take time to savor God's word. Right? Which is important. Uh, and, and that's what I would recommend to you. Okay? So let's look at this first principle um, for understanding God's word. That principle of observation. Which obviously begins with reading. Here's the thing. We don't always know how to read. You're like, what? I know how to read. Do you? Can you read for retention? Can you read for you know, maximum understanding? Because you're not approaching a work of fiction here. This is not Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or your Harlequin romance novels, if they're still out there. I don't know. I'm dating myself with those. I know nothing of those. Okay? Or, yes, or the Lifetime movies and all that. This is God's Word. This is God's Word you're approaching. Are you reading it with that understanding? So let me give you some principles for reading God's Word and how to read God's Word. The first thing I want you to do is all reading of God's Word should start with prayer. Read God's Word prayerfully. It's important and an essential component of Bible reading and Bible study. The Bible is a spiritual book. It's a spiritual book that has to be spiritually comprehended. To be spiritually comprehended, you need to have spiritual 
insight. And the only way to get spiritual insight is through the Spirit's illumination. There's no other way. This is why people can read God's Word. They approach it. I read God's Word. That really had nothing for me. It's all a work of fiction. A lot of myth in there. A lot of made-up stuff. It contradicts itself. You're not reading God's Word this way. But if you read prayerfully, depending on the Spirit's illumination, you'll come to what 1 Corinthians 2.12 says. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. You cannot understand the things freely given you by God without the Holy Spirit, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So when you come to God's Word, you come with an utter dependence that if He doesn't illuminate this to my eyes and give me spiritual eyesight and insight, I won't understand it. It won't change me. It won't transform me. And we should desire that. We should be begging God, asking God for that, beseeching God for that when we come to His Word. You pray before, you pray during, you pray after. And guess what? He answers those prayers. He will give you clarity and insight. So pray for divine guidance as you approach His Word. Ask God to give you clarity. Ask Him to give you the wisdom from His Word. Ask Him to give you desire for His Word. Desire to do what He's telling you to do and what you're reading. He'll give it to you. E.M. Bounds wrote in one of his works on prayer, we find furthermore the power of prayer to create a real love for the Scriptures and to put within men a nature which will take pleasure in the Word. That's what we're after That as we read God's word, a love for his word just blossoms in our heart. And we take delight in him. So ask him to cause you to take delight in his word. Approach God's word. Read God's word prayerfully. Let your Bible reading and study begin with prayer. Read God's word also thoughtfully. Now, this is important. Read God's word thoughtfully. That means eliminate distractions. So that when you come to God's word, you can focus on God's word. You can concentrate on God's word. It's kind of like, you know, it's not, this is not a, a book you can read while you're mowing the lawn, right? <laughs> or doing any number of things that we do. How much focus and attention can we possibly give God's word when we, distractions, like our phone's going off, notifications. Oh, who's texting me now? You know, as, as you're in God, it's really hard to concentrate on God's word when we're not focused on it. Again, who is speaking to you right now when you're in the word? God is. God is. Come to it with a holy reverence and respect because it's God who's speaking to you. Now, look, I know we have a million distractions that no first century believer could have imagined the distractions that you and I have today. Technology has ruined us in many ways. It's made our life great in many ways, and it has ruined us in many ways. We can't concentrate. The average attention span is now eight seconds. This is why we have so many stupid TikTok videos. Eight seconds long, ten seconds. Why? Because people can't concentrate. They can't focus. This requires intense focus and concentration to understand it. It doesn't come any other way. You can't get this in a little tweet, a little sound bite. Don't approach God's way that way. 
Now, to you moms who have young kids, this is probably one of the, the, the biggest things I hear from, from moms with, with young children. It is hard to devote time to study God's Word. The desire is there, but the distractions are many. The demands are many. And it is so difficult, you know, because you open up your Bible and he just emptied the plate of cereal on his head, or she did over here on this side, or there's a fight over here, and there's screaming over here. What do you do? Well, I'm not a mom, but I asked moms, and I asked my wife, who was a great mom when Ariel was young, what is a, what is a young mom to do? One of the things I know is we have to train our children to respect our time in prayer and in the Word. We have to teach that. And that's not an easy thing to do. So I like Betsa's recommendation to young moms and moms with young kids. Just do it. Even in the midst of the craziness and distractions, open your Bible. Even if it's just to read three verses because that's all you can get through with the mayhem. Dads, you need to help your wife here in this, in this time too. You know, it, so that she can devote time to being in God's Word. Not only should you be in it with her, but... She needs time in God's word. Help her with that. Your time, take the kids out for a while. I know it's, this is not an easy thing to do whatsoever. And again, New Testament believers here, the early church, they didn't have a Bible in their house. So it's not like they were devoting enormous times to studying the script. No, they heard it when they gathered or when they talked to one another about God's word. We have the blessing and privilege of having God's word. So just do it. Just do it. Over time, we have to trust that God is going to work not only in our hearts and lives as we're devoting the time to do it, even in the midst of the craziness, but our children then are going to see how much we treasure and value God's word, that they'll, they, they'll have seen us opening it time and time again. Okay? So get in there. Do it. And don't, lay, don't weigh yourself down with guilt. You know, over, I couldn't get through everything I wanted to read. It's okay. I promise you God doesn't love you any less. I think he delights in, the, in your attempt. I think he delights in the effort. I think he delights the devotion you give to it. And God will bless that. It's no easy answer to that. But you've got to work through it. And there's a lot of great moms in this room that have gone before you. Ask them what they did. You don't just have to read the Bible in the bathroom with the door locked. There's other ways to do that, okay? Uh, but read thoughtfully. Also, read God's Word imaginatively. And by this I mean, in, in, just get in God's Word, and as you're reading, especially narrative, put yourself in the place here of what's taking place. Engage all of the other sensory things that are happening there. Sights, sounds, smells. I love reading God's Word. This because I'm trying to imagine what was going on. What was this person thinking? What, what were the events? What was the environment like in there? It just helps me to, to kind of make sense of some of the things a little bit more. Because why? I am not in that time. I'm a creature of, 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 of this time period in human history. This is why it's important as we begin to in, interpret Scripture and we begin to study those things, we begin to see, ah, this is what was going on during that time. Oh, this is what that word meant. Oh, this is what that action signified or typified there. And then I can start to get into that a little bit there. Read out loud. Okay, this is to vary your approach. Some of us just like to read silently. 
It's kind of hard. This goes back to reading thoughtfully. Sometimes you need to read out loud so you can give it more thought and attention and concentration. Okay? Vary your reading. Use different translations. I've listed a few there uh, in, uh, that, that I would say all of those would be safe to read. They all are in different places. Some are literal, word for word. Some are more uh, thought for thought translations. Uh, if, you, if you see ESV, CSV is a lot more readable than the NASB. But those are more word for word translations. Uh, the NIV is dynamic equivalency or more thought for thought. Uh, the translators had, you know, kind of uh, gave an interpretation to tease out the meaning with a little more clarity. The NLT uh, is a little bit looser in its thought for thought uh, translation, but generally it's pretty good. And the reason I say to use different translations is because there's different nuances of words there that kind of give you a little bit. Uh, enhanced understanding of what's taking place. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. And then I would recommend also listen to the audio reading of the passage, the chapter of the book uh, that you're studying, right? Which is why we gifted a dwell, the Dwell Bible app to our church family, which you can still avail yourself of if you haven't. But vary your approach. Read imaginatively. imaginatively. Read meditatively. This is why it's important to reread repetition of reading the same thing over and over again. You marinate yourself uh, in the text. You're immersing yourself in it. You'll have time to reflect on it. So even when you end your Bible reading throughout the day, come back to the text. Just let it wash over you. Turn over phrases and verses in your mind. I'm doing this throughout the day. As I've studied something throughout the the day, I come back to it in my mind and I'm thinking through it. And nine times out of 10, just something else is another thing that catches my attention that I begin to emphasize in the way I'm rehearsing it uh, that gives me a greater understanding, okay? All right, and embeds it even deeper in my mind and heart, okay? Uh, So revisit what you're reading throughout the day, okay? Uh, God's word tells us numerous times to meditate on his word. Uh, Lastly, on this portion of reading, read God's word purposefully. Now, there's a lot in that I packed into this here. But when you read purposely, this is going to aid you when you come to interpreting, to understanding the meaning of the text. And here's where I recommend that you either get a notebook or one of the ESV scripture journals or you just write in your Bible. It's okay to write in your Bible. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> Highlight, underline, circle, little stars, make little notes in the margins of your Bible. It's okay. You're not blaspheming the scriptures by doing that, okay? This is to help you in understanding and seeing things in scriptures. This is part of understanding what does it say. Things that we're looking for clues in there to understand and unpack the meaning of what we're reading there. Um, and I, and I, again, uh, again, here's what I do. I, I just, I'll let you into my process. I, when I approach the reading of a new book of the Bible, I actually print out the entire book of the Bible. Just like this, right here. Uh, and I use this for my Logos Bible software that has uh, different translations. I print out the ESV, the entire of the book of Bible, and I print it out with wide margins so I can write in here, Okay. And what, everything I'm telling you here that follows, I do here. Like, this is my study in First Peter, okay? 
I'm, I'm circling, I'm writing, I'm taking notes. There's observations, there's questions that I, as I approach the text. And I do that for every book of the Bible, right, as I'm studying it, okay? That's why you need a, a notebook, you need a scripture journal, you need something else. Because if you're doing it right, you're not just writing a couple little things, okay? Because you, you're going to begin to see a lot of things as you read the same thing over and over and over again each day. Very important. So what are we looking for here? Well, here's some things to pay attention to. I want you to identify key terms, key phrases, key people or places that you see in Scripture. Now, I'm probably going to work through an example of this next week, all right? But we're not going to take time to do that uh, at this moment here. But, but look for key terms and phrases that you see repeated, okay, which is another part of this. Things that are repeated are important. The writer is trying to get something across here. And the fact that it's been mentioned a couple of times is an important clue ah, that this might help us understand what this means, okay? So begin to circle those, identify those, okay? Uh, Look for the frequency and appearance of certain characters in the book. That's going to give you a good indication uh, of what this book is about. And that's why it's important to know who it's written to, who the author is, who it's written to. What was the intended audience? Around what time of history was this, this written to? What are the key themes that the author is mentioning here or repeating in here? Uh, again, the literary genre of the book. What am I reading? Is this narrative? Are, are these the epistles? Is this apocalyptic literature? Is this a prophetic book of the Bible? Um, the author's stated purpose name. Why was this written? Sometimes when you read the apostolic letters, they tell you. They come out and say it. In fact, in the Gospel of John, right at the end of John, John 20, 31, John says, here's why I've written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Ah, this is why he wrote, okay? Other times, we've got to dig a little bit deeper to understand the thesis statement, the aim, the purpose of why it was written, um, Think about events or themes that are emphasized. And by that I mean a large portion of the writing of the book of the letter is devoted to a particular theme. That gives you a clue that that's one of the most important things in that letter. It's a key theme of that letter. And now for some of you, this is like, oh, this is the part I hate, grammar. Understanding grammar is really important um, to getting to the meaning of the text. It really is. And you're like, man, grammar. I took grammar. That was a long time ago. I know. Some of you, that could have been 120 years ago. Okay? That's not anybody in this room. It was a long time ago for me. But, but it's important to know. But just come back to the basics. Look at the, look at the sentence. Look at a clause. Look at a phrase. What's the verb? Verbs are super important. Okay? What's the verb? What's the action happening here? What's the subject? Who's the one doing the action? What's, what's the object? That's, that's, that's the one receiving the verbal action from the subject. Right? Just kind of identify those in a particular, because that's important to helping break down what's being written there. Look at the different modifiers used, the adjectives, right? descriptive words to enhance the action that's taking place or the nouns and all these things. That starts giving you clues and ideas that you're beginning to identify that's going to help you in the interpretation. Look for transition words, connective words, conjunctions. Remember the little ditty? 
cartoon that we used to watch about conjunctions. You might need to go online and get a refresher on some of those there, right? But you have tons of those, right? But, and, or, therefore, so that, because, for. All these things help us understand the flow of the thought of the writer, okay? When a transition's being made, these, these words help us shift and understand, ah, now I can make sense of the flow, the structure of, of what's being presented and communicated. Uh, little prepositional words, right? Like in, on, by, and through. These tell us where the action's taking place. How many times do we see in Paul's letter the reference of being in Christ? That short prepositional phrase is massive, and, it, and it's huge. Look at for similes. Look for metaphors, comparisons, contrasts. Right? I'm going to try to find some resources I can give you, and, and we'll, we'll link those in next week's sermon notes to kind of come back to, to, to understanding basic grammar. But if you want to read and study God's Word, this, this is important. This is important to, to be able to, to, to identify these things and looking at them. Again, the goal of careful reading and observation is to know what the Bible says. To know what it says. So we want to read it thoughtfully and prayerfully and meditatively and imaginatively and purposefully so we can drill down to go, ah, I get it. This is what it's saying. Like, if you can come back and paraphrase in your own words some of the things, I believe you probably understood it a little bit better. Now, there's some great tools that can aid you, and I'm closing with this here in your Bible reading. Um, One of the greatest tools I think every one of you should have, if you don't, is a good study Bible. Okay, That's a Bible that's going to have a lot of commentary notes, Bible atlases, maps, charts, um, book introductions with tons of background information. I highly recommend the ESV Study Bible. It is my study Bible of choice. I know many of you probably here may have that. If you don't have it, there's a link there to, to uh, Amazon where you can order a hardcover copy of it. You can get a nice leather-bound one or fake leather or something like that. It doesn't matter. Uh, I just recommend you get, you get a study Bible. It is going to help you. Now, you don't start with your study Bible. I don't want you to get in the habit of just going as you're reading and immediately reading notes. That's not the goal. But it's going to help you, right, to uncover things. When we come to interpretation and and working through application, these things are going to help you. Uh, But to know and understand who the author is. Who is he writing to? When was this written? What was taking place around that time? Where does this fit in salvation history or redemptive history? They give you an outline uh, of the book of the Bible and key themes and all, all sorts of information. Um, uh, there's an online version of that as well that I think you, you have to pay for. Uh, but I recommend if you're going to be a good student of God's Word, there's no substitute for having it in print. All right, It's really hard to get the big picture on a little screen, scrolling to find all of these things. All right? But when you can see it laid out for you on the page... It just, makes, it just makes a lot of sense, okay? So, so get a good study Bible. The ESV study Bible, highly recommend. There's some online resources. Now, these guys have gotten slick because a lot of this stuff used to be free. It's not all free anymore. Now, you can get some of the things free, and then you have to have a monthly subscription. So like Bible Gateway or BibleGateway.com, BibleStudyTools.com. They used to have a ton of resources that were all free, and now they give you a few things free, and then... 
the really good stuff is paid. So, But there's enough to get you started. A study Bible and some of those online resources, you can do a ton of study uh, for that. Those of you who want to be really serious students of God's Word, I highly recommend Lagos Bible Software. That is my force multiplier in study. Uh, I, it's something I open up every day. Now, this is something I've had since 2010. Uh, it's, it's paid. It's not free. In fact, it's pretty expensive. Uh, just recently, I went back, and I've probably spent close to $5,000 over 13 years in upgrading this library. But I've got, I've got more than I'll ever need in life, you know, to study God's Word through that. I can search for something and immediately have commentaries, lexical aids, language tools, commentaries, Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, all sorts of information uh, really quick, and I can amass what I need much faster. Go to Lagos.com. You don't have to spend that kind of money. They have payment plans for, for the starter things. It is a phenomenal and fantastic tool, but you, you will need to be a little more computer savvy because there's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to learn to use well for Bible study. Uh, but you can check that out there, and, and I recommend that. I've also put a link to two introductory books on biblical theology. If you want to delve into a little bit deeper in understanding biblical theology, the grand storyline of Scripture, two very easy, easy to uh, accessible books that you can purchase and learn a little bit more about the storyline of Scripture. It is going to help you enormously uh, in understanding God's Word. Okay, Again, I want to come back to what is our aim in all of this? It's not to be Bible nerds. It's not just be able to spit out Bible facts and get on Bible trivia. It's to love God's Word. It's to delight in His God's Word. Take joy and be nourished by the Word of God because we want to be people who rightly handle the Word of Truth. I want every one of you here, well, you already are a theologian. I just want you to be a good theologian. I want you to rightly handle the truth of God's Word. So to do that, read it in the manner we described don't be overwhelmed. Don't guilt yourself and like, I'm not reading enough. We could all be reading more. We could all be studying more. Okay, just start. Just start. Pick a book of the Bible and go. <laughs> you know, read it for 30 days. Commit yourself to that. Because God's word is living and active. His word is supernatural and transformative. You come to God's word prayerfully, depending on the spirit for illumination. I promise you, God will work in you through his word. He'll change you. He'll change you. Here's the thing, too. God promises to reward those who diligently seek him. So set yourself to that, and let's see what God does.